Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. This is the cure for your nightmares, frolicking in the joys of spring. Tra-la, tra-la, tra-la. <laughs> the lusty month of May, eh? Don't you just love springtime? I wonder if my editor, Wendy Wagner, likes springtime. I bet she does. Birdies tweeting, flowers blooming, things rotting in the compost pot. No. And what adorable little animal reminds us most of springtime, hmm? What burrowing, gregarious, plant-eating mammal with long ears and long hind legs and a short little tail? Why, a rabbit, of course. In fiction, we have a panoply of famous rabbits. Let's see. There's the Easter Bunny and the literary Peter Rabbit. There are the animated Bug Stumper, Roger and Jessica. There's Alice's White Rabbit. Did you know Harlan Ellison played the White Rabbit in the movie I made about audiobooks called The Delivery? Well, he did. But if we look at the more nightmarish rabbits in literature and film, I always thought that the invisible Harvey was a bit nightmarish. Then we would have to definitely take a look at the foul and cruel inhabitant of the cave of Kerbanach, killer rabbit. The tragic velveteen rabbit. Dear Lord, that was a depressing story. And Glenn Close's favorite stew ingredient in Fatal Attraction. I've been called a lot of things, but never a bunny boiler. However, today's story is a boiler and a scorcher. The title is... The... Oh, no. I thought the title was The Rabbit. It's not? Oh, dear. Oh, but this is much better. The Cabot, which, of course, is just spelled the same way as rabbit, but with a C. The author is Maria Dong. Her short fiction has been published in, or is forthcoming from, Augur, Apparition Lit, Decoded Pride, and Fusion Fragment, among others. Her Korean mythology-inspired fantasy novel, Bad Moon Child, was featured in the 2018 Pitch War Showcase. She can be reached via Twitter at Maria Dong Writes or on the web at mariadong.com. She's represented by Amy Bishop at Distal, Goderich, and Burette, or as they are known in the industry as DG&B. Maria lives in a centenarian house in southwest Michigan with her partner and a potato dog. Now that song is going to get stuck in my head. The narrator is the vocally and visually elegant Justine Eyre. I am always mesmerized by Justine's storytelling talents. Justine has narrated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of audiobooks, among them The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. She sounds great, you say, but what does she look like? Not Kostova, Justine. Well, 
Why don't you catch her on film? Justine again, not Kostova. Justine's most recent film is for the Lifetime Channel, and it's called Desperate Widows, in which she plays the character of Paige, a newly widowed best-selling author who winds up in a mommune. That, that's a commune for moms. <laughs> what fun words today. Mommune, cabots, and my favorite, the author has a potato dog. Oh, well, I will now sing the potato dog song for you at varying speeds for your amusement. First, at regular speed. Oh, potato dog! The hook, eh? All right, so sit back in your little rabbit hole, cuddle up, and listen to The Cabot by Maria Dong. I promise I won't wake you up. The Cabot by Maria Dong. It's a cabot. He wiggles his fingers through the grill of the hard plastic kennel. He is John, or Tim, or maybe Jim, some name that means random white guy at a Midwestern college. It's not that I don't care, I just can't quite remember. Through one of the air holes, I glimpse something that swirls dark and shining like a galaxy. It speaks of hidden places, but when Jim pulls the furry body into the light, all I can think is soft and long. Soft, long ears, a curling cat's tail. Here, he pushes it toward me. Its legs flop like a teddy bear's. My fingers curl around the cabot's soft, long body. Even its weight is an in-between, heavier than a dictionary, lighter than my anatomy textbook. What's her, um, its name? I don't want him to think I'm obsessed with gendering the non-human. He rolls his eyes. Cabots aren't like that. Oh. I look down at this soft, long thing, curled up in my palms like a velvet secret. Rabbits are obligate herbivores. Cats, obligate carnivores. A true cat-rabbit hybrid can't exist, which means this cabot is one or the other. I wonder if rich people do cosmetic surgeries on animals, Where'd you get it? His eyebrows rise. I've asked the wrong question. He puts the cabot back in its kennel. It feels like a punishment. The RAs check bags for contraband. When Jim first moved in, he broke the lock on his bathroom window so people could toss things up. He makes cash by taking orders, mostly weed and booze. We pass the day on our backs, drinking wine while listening to Bob Dylan on vinyl, which she assures me is better than digital. I've never done something like this, at once leisurely and pretentious. The entire afternoon, I shift on the carpet as if scratching an itch. Each time he passes the bottle to me, I sit up, unwilling to risk staining my shirt. He crawls to the mattress in the corner. He dozes off, ignoring me, but it feels like the windows have all been opened, the room allowed to breathe. I no longer worry I'll violate some unspoken rule and render myself unattractive, I can bask in his presence without fear, can press myself close enough to smell laundry softener and wine and skin. I can adore the way the sunlight plays on his golden ringlets. I've never dated a man with long hair before. I'm grateful for this moment. My nipping and tucking and shaving and painting all seem worthwhile. An hour passes. He makes signs that he'll awaken soon, shuffling throaty grunts and groans. I retreat so he won't think I'm crazy, but now I'm back to being unsure of where to stand, of what to do with my hands. 
The cab it scratches in its kennel. I cross the room. The latch on the grill requires more dexterity than it should. Hello. I hold my fingers by the open door and wait, and the cabot approaches, the end of its nose twitching. Its fur is soft and tingles under my skin. I'll give you something you can pet. Jim, it's Jim, I'm sure it's Jim, says from the bed. His voice is gravelly with sleep and arousal, and this too is a relief. I take his already stiff penis in my hand, glad to have a task I know how to perform. When we're done, I creep to the bathroom and spit his semen in the sink. I don't turn on the light. I hate looking at cum, and Jim's mirror makes me look fat. Some of the other floors have one giant communal bathroom. I imagine walking down the hallway, mouth full, and feel sick. From his room come soft snaps, like someone breaking the ends off fat green beans. When I come back, Jim's moved the kennel to the mattress. He lays next to it like a lover and pushes a small, clear circle toward its open door, a petri dish. He took it from my bag without asking. I remind myself that I'm grateful. The cabot's nose twitches. On the dish are a number of motionless white crescents, slivers that look like maggots. A bell rings in my head. They are fingernails. This is cruel, but I'm only surprised by my lack of surprise. What are you doing? He shushes me with a finger. You'll scare it, he whispers. He taps the dish, and the cabot edges out of the cage a few inches. Cabots are special. They eat the parts you don't want anymore. Hair, fingernails, that kind of thing. I look from the soft, long cabot to the almost empty petri dish, and something hot and bitter slides down my throat. I imagine feeding the cabot the wine stains from his shirt. I'm going to be late for class. I grab my bag and push my way out the door. In high school, a parade of incensed teachers lectured us about how much harder college would be. But throughout my freshman year, it's felt like the professors think we're incapable of learning. When new knowledge is hidden better than a stone in the mud, it's a Herculean task to focus. Nobody does the reading. I do the reading for two months. I stop when it becomes clear I'm punishing myself. I remember my mother glaring at me as I practice my multiplication tables. My professor drones on about the Krebs cycle, the conversion of pyruvate into acetyl-CoA. The classroom is so hot, I'm sweating. I think about Jim. If I hurry back after class, I can beat him to his room. I don't have a key, but he never locks his door. This is so arrogant, it steals my breath away. So brave, it makes me love him more. I long to drink of the magic that has protected him all this time. I'll arrange myself on the bed for his return, close my eyes and pretend to be an inviting angel in sleep, one that's also sexy. I imagine him coming home. He praises me for my beauty before ravaging me. I follow that as far as I dare, but then it starts to feel like hope, and I check back into the lecture. Like a car in a traffic jam, we haven't moved. Someone asks what dehydrogenase is, a question that was answered three days ago. I think about the cabot, the potential of an animal that eats the parts you no longer want. First, I think of hair, the disobedient flyaways that stick out when I put my hair up, my overbearing eyebrows, and really, all the hair on my body from the neck down. But there are so many other things. 
I'd give the cabot the way my heart sinks when I get a text and cannot interpret the meaning. I would give it the parts of me that are a bad daughter, that see my mother's phone number on the caller ID and send it to voicemail. Halfway through the lecture, I can't take it anymore. I stand up and exit with a swift power walk that means rushing to the bathroom. The professor doesn't say anything. When I get to the cabot, I pull out a frizzled hair, but I'm too scared to give it over. I arrange myself on the bed like an enticing meal for Jim's return. I wake up. It feels like there's a needle stuck in my chest. It's dark outside, and Jim isn't here. He could be studying at the library, picking up supplies for a project, at the store buying a textbook he forgot. I don't believe those things. Jim sometimes goes to class, but he never does homework. The closest he gets is typing terrible poems on his ancient typewriter. But then I don't understand poetry. I wait and wait and wait, my stomach tightening like a thread around a nail, until, scratch, scratch, the cabot paws at its kennel. Poor cabot. I bring the kennel to the bed. My hands shake when I open the little door, but I manage. The cabot shuffles out and butts its head into my belly, and something liquidy cools my center before radiating outward. I've never felt so calm before. It's like someone reached inside me and pulled out a thorn. Thank you, I say to the cabot. And then I finally come up with a scheme that will work. I cross the room and lock the door. Jim's keys sit on the desk, next to the typewriter, which means this space is now safe. I start with my body. My hands shake as I draw my palms up my legs. They are freshly shaved, and yet I can feel prickles of invisible hair falling off. The cabot's nose and mouth move, as if it's chewing, despite there being nothing there. I move my hands to my belly, my hips, my thighs. I give the cabot the wings under my arms, the lumpy bit behind my knees. I don't see the change as it happens. But the next time I look down, there's a gap between my legs, and my belly is flat and smooth. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude, with hope. I have so much to give the cabot, but I'm also suddenly impossibly tired. It's hard work remaking oneself. Thank you. I pull the cabot to me and inhale the smell of its fur, like cedar and old paper, before closing my eyes. I'm awakened by frantic hammering on the door. I'm coming! It's only when I'm reaching for the lock that I realize I'm still holding the cabot. I shuffle the creature to one arm and turn the lock with the other hand. The door flies open. I have to leap backwards to avoid its swing. With the cabot in my arms, I can't break my fall, and I land hard on my ass. Where is he? Tom hollers. Tom, that's his name. I remember now. I shove the cabot at Tom. I'm sorry, I say. I... Tom pulls himself down to my level, bringing his face inches from mine. Where is he? I suddenly understand. He thinks I'm cheating. I don't... There's nobody, I stammer. It feels like I've fallen through ice and into freezing water. Tom throws open the bathroom door. He flings open the closet. He crouches to check under the bed. When it's clear that there's nowhere else a person could hide, he sits. The desk chair screeches under his weight, the sound flaying my bare nerves. The danger has passed. 
I don't need to be afraid anymore. I should go to him, comfort him, but I can't seem to move. I feel it then. The cool sensation radiates from my left arm into my body, melting through the limb. I sigh in relief as the cabbage works its magic, before setting the creature carefully on the bed. Tom? He sags in the chair, as if his muscles have all disengaged, leaving nothing but his bones to prop him up. Still, I approach him as if he's a cornered animal, circling around so he can see me, scuffing my feet to make some noise. Talk to me, Tom. I'm sorry. His face looks rueful, as if this is all some terrible trick he's played on himself. I just, you know how I feel about you, right? My throat clenches. He has not said this word, love. Tom doesn't believe in love, and I'm ashamed that I've doubted his feelings at times, despite knowing how hard it is for him to express himself. I drag sandbags across my heart, shoring up my love for him. Just tell me the truth, he says. Why'd you lock the door? He glances at me, and I catch the spark there, a warning. Tread carefully. I'm not afraid. No, thanks to the cabot, I'm my best self. The lie unfurls like a revelation. There was a guy following me after class. I got scared. I ran back and locked the door. His face relaxes, the spark snuffing out, and he looks back at the offending door. I should kill him, he says, real venom in his voice. What did he look like? Warmth blooms in my belly at this demonstration, but I still need to be careful. I don't know, I say, hedging my bets. I was too afraid to get a good look. His jaw tightens. Seconds go by before he nods. All right, he says. I understand. I thought things between us were fixed, but I was wrong, because even though we're laying in bed, the tension between us is as brittle as lake ice, and I don't want to fall through again. I pretend to sleep on my back. He is on his side, propped up on his arm. I can feel him staring, as if I'm some kind of puzzle to solve. What if he decides he can't forgive me? Or worse, that he loves me too much, and that scares him. There's a cold pit in my stomach. I want to give it to the cabot, but Tom put the animal back in its cage. Undoing his action would only make him mad again. I calculate my move. It has to look natural. I roll to my side. I pull back and push my ass into his stomach. My tailbone, bruised from the fall, twinges in a warning I ignore. He tenses and says my name, but I concentrate on making my breath slow and even. I can feel him stiffening, as if his penis is siphoning energy from our contact. Please, I think. I love you. He inhales. His hand skims up my hip before descending toward the junction of my legs. Once, I would have shifted to pretend to give him access, but my cabot-slimmed thighs no longer crowd him out. He feels how warm I am and moans. He rubs himself against me. Only when he hikes up my leg and pushes himself inside do I pretend to awaken. The next day is Thursday, which means morning class for both of us. I want him to leave first so I can feed the cabot, but he's watching me. Any change from the ordinary will make him suspicious again. I have to go. I clutch my bag and kiss him on the mouth. He grabs my wrist as I turn away. Hey, 
He looks me up and down. I didn't have a chance to tell you last night, but you look different, good, really beautiful. I glow under his praise, even as I wave it away with my free hand. I'm just me, like I always am. As soon as I'm through the door, I pause in the hallway and take a deep, solid breath. Thank you, Cabot, I whisper. I remain too long. The door handle jiggles, and I run away, quick and silent, like a Cabot streaking across a garden. I wait in some bushes until I see him exit the front door of the building, and then I steal back into his room, unlocked as usual. I can't risk locking the door again, so I take the cabot into the bathroom. I turn on the light, but it's harsh on my eyes, and I can see myself in the mirror. I flip it off. After my tailbone, my face will be the first thing I fix. I enter the shower and pull the curtain, before gingerly sitting on the damp floor with the cabot. I let it go. Its nose twitches as it observes me, and even in the dim light, I can tell it looks different. Still soft, but no longer quite so long. It's definitely fatter. How did I not notice as I was carrying it into the bathroom? Sweat trickles down my back. What if Cabot's can only eat so much, or only so often? Or what if Tom figures out it's my fault his Cabot looks different? I've been greedy, too greedy. I resolve to use the Cabot only for those things that are truly important. I ask the Cabot to heal my tailbone. Sex was excruciating last night, and then I make a list of goals in my head and organize them by priority. I'm so absorbed, the click of the bathroom door opening catches me unaware. I hold my breath, waiting for the light to shine through the thin shower curtain and expose me, but the door just shuts. This was stupid. I creep to the door and rest my ear against it. Sounds echo from the other side, muffled as if underwater. Oh! a woman's moan. This doesn't mean anything. The door is unlocked. Everybody knows it. Some gross couple decided to use Tom's dorm for sex. I should clean the bed, maybe even replace the mattress. She moans louder, but there's no thrusting. Her partner must be doing something else, fingering her, eating her out. I can't help but find that exciting. I've never been able to submit to being eaten, not even when someone asks. Some other time, I would have been tempted to touch myself. Been tempted, but would not have indulged, I admonish, hoping it's true. But right now, all I can think about is getting out of here. She comes, and her orgasm isn't like mine. There's no show to it, nothing to make her partner feel special. It's just a big sigh, the sound of a wave hitting the shore. Tell me how good it was, a male voice. I grab my throat. So good, Tom. She laughs, a breathy, fluttering sound. How do I taste? It feels like I'm dying, like my skin is peeling off. And then my rage reaches the end of its track and turns inward. This is my punishment. If I'd only given that part of myself to Tom, he wouldn't have gone somewhere else. The sounds start. Slap, slap, slap. I have to get out of this bathroom before they finish, before they clean up but I'm paralyzed. Something bumps my leg, and the cool feeling climbs up to my core, freeing my limbs. Exhaustion hits me like a wall. I put the cabot back in the shower and whisper to it to stay. I crawl out the window, jump to the bushes below. 
My ankle pops when I land. It's fine, just another thing to give to the cabot. I can't outrun my tiredness. I close my eyes. When I wake up, my ankle is the size of a melon. I stumble back into the dormitory and up to his room. It still smells like sex. I should be hurt or jealous, but when I reach for the feelings, there's just a numb ache. With the Cabot's help, I can be the cool girl, the one that plays hard to get, the one that can offer her body without having to stake a claim. I just don't want to lose Tom. I check the shower. The Cabot is still here. I ask it to heal my ankle before collapsing on the mattress. When Tom returns, I jump him. I crush my mouth into his, roam his body with my hands. He shoves me away, suspicious. I was too eager. I'm sorry, I was just thinking about that guy. I love that you want to protect me. He relaxes then, lets me kiss him, lets me tease him with my fingers and tongue. I guide him to the bed, glad to know he wants me. It's not until we're both naked that the words leave my mouth unanticipated, unwanted. Maybe you could go down on me. I'd love to, he says, smiling. But I kind of have a headache. Oh, the air rushes out of me. Why her and not me? The cabot has taken my jealousy, but I can still feel abandoned like something less. Is it? I can't bring myself to ask if it's my smell, my taste. I checked before he got back, put my fingers inside and smelled them before sucking on them. As far as I can tell, I don't taste like anything. No, no. He crushes his mouth over mine again. I'm just so desperate to feel you. And besides, you're not one of those girls, right? I shake my head. Although the truth is, I don't know what that means anymore. We make love, but my head is far away. When we're done, he kisses me and makes his way to the shower. I'll get the water started. My stomach is sticky, but I wait until he's gone. I need to know what he meant, what kind of girl I am. I go through his phone. It's password protected, but I try 1111 and it opens. I comb his messages for some kind of unifying theorem that lays out what I need to know. What makes her her and me me. Hey, are you coming? He calls. I look up. The cabot is staring at me from the open door of its kennel. I go back to scrolling. There are so many women. I don't have time to parse all this. I put the phone back and get into the shower. As the water covers my head, I ask myself what it means to love someone. I play my part, wash, smile, put on tangled up in blue, and ply him with wine. Fuck him again, this time like there'll be no tomorrow. Feign a headache, tell him I want to go to sleep early. He laughs and embraces me, and we lay there until his breathing deepens into a snore. I go to the cabot's cage. I haven't made my decision yet, but I can feel it's close, a loose tooth that hangs by a lone root. I can't live like this, I think to the cabot. There's no way to love him that doesn't hurt, but I can't stop. I stroke the cabot's head, this creature that's supposed to take the parts of me I don't want. Help me decide. I feel the coolness then. When I probe my thoughts, I'm relieved to discover I no longer need to go through his phone. The cabot has yanked my weakness out. I can be with him now without worrying. 
I put the cabot down and fall into sleep before my body even hits the bed. That night, I dream wet, crunching sounds, the smell of copper. I look up and see the cabot sitting on Tom's chest. Tom's head and one of his arms is missing, and the cabot is chewing, chewing, chewing. What a strange dream, I think, before falling back into the dark. When I wake up, the cabot is gone and I'm alone. There's something mushy in the back of my mind, something I was supposed to remember but can't. It's not until I'm checking the room that I realize I'm missing a name, a name for this man that has left his phone, his wallet, and his keys. It's frustrating not knowing this, and it makes me think of that loose tooth again, that lone root, just a hot, painful itch. I forget it when I see the note sticking out of the typewriter. Too hard taking care of an animal, decided to return the cabot. I should be angry. The reflex is there. That's my cabot. I need it. But when I tongue the soft places inside me, all I find is that itch again, a desire to walk until my legs collapse. I flip the note over and type, I'm breaking up with you. I take his keys and lock the door as I leave. Somewhere between his place and mine, I drop them into a sewer grate. They rattle as they hit the bottom. I think about changing my major, about dropping out of school. But this can wait, can be figured out tomorrow, next week, next month. I take in a deep breath and sigh, and the sound is like an ocean wave, soft and long. Oh, I bet you're awake now. I know I am. That cabot is definitely the stuff of nightmares. Although the depilatory aspect is tempting. I hope you enjoyed The Cabot by Maria Dong, read to you by the brilliant Justine Eyre. The story is copyrighted 2021, so don't even think about it. Now, go out there, get out of that rabbit hole, and tell all your little burrowing friends, and help spread the word. You realize this one was on the rabbit hole, but please consider our many subscription options online. We would be humbled by your recurring patronage. Nightstand tip. On your nightstand should be a copy of The Apocalypse 7 by the astonishingly talented Jean Doucette. Brought to you by John Joseph Adams Books and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Oh, here come the credits. Stop nibbling on that carrot and pay attention. Nightmare Magazine is edited by Wendy Wagner. This podcast is copyright 2021 by Adamant Press. This story was produced by Skyboat Media, the premier recording team on the West Coast, who now offers the special TARDIS isolation booth to keep your narrator safe and distanced during production. Skyboat is headed by Grammy and Audi winners Stefan Rudnicki and moi. Visit us at skyboatmedia.com. The exquisite post-production is done by Hour of the Wolf fame superstar Jim Freund. Pause for applause. Thank you for nightmaring with us. I'm de cure for your nightmares, and I promise never to wake you up. From all of us here, good nightmare magazine. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world 
that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.